If this podcast inspires you to fast track your own career journey, visit fasttracktofearless.com to enroll in one of my courses. There's a special 20% discount for podcast listeners that's available for all paid courses. Enter the code POD20 at checkout. Welcome to Fast Track to Fearless. I'm Tracy Forsyth, and I'm here to help you become 100% career confident. In each episode, we learn the secrets of inspirational people and fearless leaders as they share their journeys to success. I've just embraced that, yeah, I have a very different life to probably what most people see as the typical life, but that's who I am. I've never sort of been ashamed or I've never tried to apologize for being who I am. That's Stephen McRae, principal dancer of the Royal Ballet. He's been called a modern-day Fred Astaire for his tap-dancing talents. He's known for his speed, his red hair, and for originating roles such as the Mad Hatter and the Creature in Frankenstein. Stephen discovered dance at the age of seven and fell in love instantly. I describe it to people, it was like a, a tiger unleashed. I just felt this sensation before that I'd never experienced. And it was this complete freedom. Since then, he's won multiple awards, reaching the dizziest of heights in his ballet career and experienced injuries that have been crushing blows. This is a man I admire for his resilience in the face of adversity, his belief that anything is possible and his dedication to do the work it takes to achieve what he wants. I've followed Stephen's journey with great admiration and his social media presence has served as such an inspiration. So where did it all start for him? I grew up in a motorsport family. My father was a drag racer. He's an auto electrician by trade. And my mother and father raced for years and years and years. Most of their friends were met at the racetrack. They even had their honeymoon at the racetrack. So my sister and I were brought up surrounded by cars. In America, of course, there's big sponsorship and it's a full-time profession. In Australia, it was very much you know, a hobby for him. He was an auto electrician, as I said, by trade. So I grew up seen and witnessing for myself at a young age, my father, who was obviously passionate about his family and supporting his family, but had this passion that he also pursued and brought us along with him, you know, to experience that passion. And I think to see your father doing that, it, it had such an impact on me without even, you know, me realizing at such a young age. And my dad was just one of those people that would find solutions to everything and he still is that way you know he couldn't afford to import the best equipment from the United States and things like that to compete with these top cars so if he needed a new part for the engine or whatever he made it himself you know he made things with his bare hands and just made do and okay I need to try and achieve this and I can't do it the usual route so I'll find a way to try and do it and again I now know as an adult what an impact that had on me. It was always that, okay, find a solution. You know, not everybody's route to that destination is going to be the same. So um, my sister is seven years older than me. This is where the sort of probably cliche element comes in. She danced and did a bit, gym bit of gymnastics. So like most boys, I guess, followed in her footsteps. But I was inspired by her. I could see there was something unique there and interesting that was appealing to me. I was a very shy boy. I would hide behind my mom's legs all the time. I wouldn't make eye contact with people. I wouldn't communicate really. And then I asked them, I said, could I go to a dance lesson? 
And neither of them questioned it. They said, okay, great. Yep. So they sent me off to this school that my sister had started to go to. And it was literally around the corner. I grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney. It's not the the glamorous image that people think of of Sydney. You know, people think of the Sydney Harbour or Bondi Beach. That was very much not my childhood. It was an hour west. And yeah, my parents couldn't give me the world financially, but I felt like I had the world. I had them. I had their support. And that to me was beyond crucial. Like here I was, a seven-year-old boy in quite, at the time, it was a rough area of Sydney, surrounded by traditionally, you know, very, this is a male role, that is a female role world. You know, it was the early 90s at the time. And here I had two parents saying, great, go and go and dance. You're the son of a drag racer, go and dance. Wonderful. Clearly, Stephen's family had a massive impact on him. Not only did they pursue their passions and supported his decisions, they also instilled the idea in him that you can do whatever you want in life. Just give it your all and do it well. So despite not knowing you could even pursue dance professionally, Stephen took that lesson to heart and worked as hard as he could. And it certainly paid off. It wasn't until I met this teacher in Sydney. So my early teachers, I now know, were some of the best teachers anybody could ever have, particularly for those foundation years. But they took me to a certain point and remarkably, they said, we've taken you as far as we think we can take you. It's time for you to go to somebody else, which is the most extraordinary quality of a teacher to acknowledge what it is that they've done, but it's time to move on. And so this teacher, Hilary Kaplan in Sydney, I met her about age 13. And she said to my parents, oh, your son will go to the Royal Ballet. None of us knew what that was. I thought it was in Melbourne or something. I had no concept of what she was talking about. And anyway, so I just started to go to her weekly and do lessons and things. And then about the age of 15, she said to my parents, this is getting serious now. You know, it's time for us to put a video together and we'll send it over to the Royal Ballet School and see if they can offer him a place and things like that. So it was about the age of 16 then that the school said, yeah, we're interested in him. They had no scholarships or anything at the time. That was obviously an absolute no-go then for my family. Like at the time it was one pound was three Australian dollars. So there was not a chance in hell (laughs) that I was going to London to live at one, you know, and train at one of the most expensive schools in the world. So then my teacher said, right, there's this competition in Switzerland, Prix de Lausanne. And the, the competition is about connecting young students, young talent to the best schools and even companies in the dance world. So I luckily won a competition in Australia a few months before it. So that prize money funded my flight to Switzerland. I turn up in Switzerland with my mom. We'd never been to Europe before. The whole competition, they spoke in French. So I had no concept what was going on. I was just I didn't grow up around any foreign languages so here I was in this completely foreign obscure setting totally out of my depth not having a clue what was going on and my mum and I were just there by ourselves and I don't know how (laughs) but at the end of the competition they were announcing the results and I was ranked first so I got the first choice of where I wanted to go and the director of the Royal Ballet School was head of the jury I said, well, of course, I would love to go to the Royal Ballet School. This was January, February time, so it's halfway through the academic year. And she said, well, I know roughly your 
family situation. So she said, don't waste money flying all the way back to Australia tomorrow to come back in the September. She said, uh, just change your flight and tomorrow, instead of connecting in London to go home, you just get off in London and that's it. You'll start at the school. Oh, so I won. Oh my goodness. I, I, mean, yeah, yeah. I won the competition Sunday evening and Monday morning, my mum and I flew to London and then Tuesday morning, she left and went back to Australia. And I was there in London. I'd just turned 17, had nowhere to live. The school facilities were full because it was halfway through an academic year. So I ended up living in a hostel for the first six months. And I struggled. It was horrible. And I was miserable. I, I just, I hated it. I just thought, this is not how I'm meant to feel at this stage. And, you know, I just cried every day basically for weeks and was lucky to have obviously met good friends in my year that really helped support me and navigate the way through but yeah it was just I guess being shot out of a cannon it was sink or swim to be honest but then those moments make you genuinely look so deep inside and say how much do I want this is it worth it and that's something I have had to question myself and ask a lot throughout my entire career, to be honest. Do you hear how Stephen says things like luckily and I just happen to a lot? These are classic phrases I hear from people with a touch of imposter syndrome. Despite his meteoric rise, Stephen still struggles to acknowledge that the hype around him is true, that he's actually pretty good at this. I don't think I've ever had that moment of, oh, yeah, okay, I've got this. I don't think I've ever got that. I've built up a huge amount of self-trust over the years. You know, when you're going out onto that stage and, you know, you've got two and a half thousand people watching you every night or it's being relayed to cinemas globally with God knows how many people watching you and with this day and age as well, everybody records everything. So what you do, it's there for life and people will judge you on that for the rest of your life, even if it is a bad show. I've had to learn that, yeah, okay, you can be as harsh a critic on yourself as you want, but you have to have that moment where you have faith in the work that you've put in to get you to that point. There's always going to be something better. There's always something that could have been executed better or whatever it is in life. But I had to, I guess, stop trying to chase this idea of perfection and rather acknowledge this is how I'm feeling right now. I've done all that work up to this point. I'm obviously going to do the best I possibly can right here, right now, and accept that, okay, there might be things that I'm not happy with, but it's still enough. It's still good enough. I think that's a different quality. Having self-trust and self-belief is different to thinking that you're good. Now, here's a moment that should bring great inspiration to anyone who's faced a blockade of seemingly insurmountable odds. A moment in Stephen's career that shows that even when the worst thing happens, we can take value in change and use it to shake up our understanding of life and what's important. Two years ago, I snapped my Achilles on the Opera House stage in front of a full auditorium. Uh, there was no one else on stage, it was just me. And that literally has changed my life. I have worked a lot with psychologists and things to, not to unpick 
my overwhelming desire to be in control of everything and to try and achieve perfection and all this other stuff. Not to unpick it because that's a part of who I am, but to acknowledge it and to to maybe start to have little markers or indicators of, you know what, you, you're sort of verging on the edge of crossing over here. It's going too far. Take a break. Or you know, sometimes you do have to walk away from a situation. And, you know, I was of the mentality, particularly growing up, you never walk away from a situation. You finish it and you get it done and you suck it up and you dig your heels in and you, you achieve it. But that's not realistic. That's not reality. Sometimes you do actually need to walk away from a situation, have a moment, reassess, come back to it. And I've learned that purely because, you know, my Achilles was reconstructed. I had to learn how to walk again. And the reality was things that I probably used to do, I could no longer do. And I had to, you know, navigate a way around that. And my idea of self-worth was challenged you know in my profession of course like any athlete the minute you are injured your self-worth the value you give yourself plummets your stocks go (laughs) in value you you see yourself as of no value you see yourself as useless and that is such a destructive world to be part of and that mentality is a very destructive mentality and I've had very good discussion about this with one of my close friends and he's a colleague dancer in the company and he he and I were saying like it, it needs to change you need to remember that your self-value your self-worth has been accumulated over your whole life just because this one moment you're injured and you okay maybe you're out of action your value does not change you're still the same person everything you've accumulated is still there this injury process if anything is only just going to add more value to you but we don't see that because if you're not there on the center of the stage doing your what is your normal job then you think that you're you're useless and worthless so the injury that I've been going through has made me reassess that and actually give more value to other elements of my life that are just as important as me standing in the middle of the stage I'm taking a quick break to tell you about the fasttracktofearless.com shop. We've got lots of inspirational merchandise on the website, all available at 20% off by using the code POD20 at checkout. You'll find gorgeous mugs and notebooks featuring motivational reminders like, why you, why not? These original designs are perfect for the office, for working at home, a perfect motivational pick-me-up to keep you inspired. You can pick up a gift card for that busy business professional in your life who still hasn't reached their full potential. The e-gift cards can be used for any of the merch or they can be spent on one of my courses, Sell Yourself Fearlessly Without Feeling Like an Imposter and Fearless Feedback. Head over to FastTractorFearless.com for more information and use the code POD20 at checkout to grab that 20% discount. Stephen is in the process of making a film. He met the filmmaker Stéphane Carrel a few years ago, and it was around that time they were exploring ideas when Stephen snapped his Achilles. It became clear that that would be the focus of the film, the rise, the fall, and the rise again of a man at the height of his career. So what are Stephen's lessons on making it back? What's his secret sauce? I've always had this inner competitiveness with myself, but... When my Achilles had snapped and I had the surgery and the place that it snapped was even 
more intricate and delicate. It was right next to the bone. So it's reinforced and I've got bungee straps on there and it's drilled into my bone and it's all, it's bionic basically. I had to navigate this new leg, this new limb. It was not the limb that I've grown up with and learnt my whole craft with. It was not functioning in any way like I was used to. I had to learn how to walk again. And there were genuine moments that, yeah, of course, I would sit there and just think, what am I doing? What am I doing? This is insane. But then I have these three little people in my life that they just want their dad. They don't care if he's flying around on the stage or, you know, can lift that amount in the gym or, you know, can throw that ballerina that high in the sky. They just want their dad. They want to they wanna go for a walk to the playground. They want to go for a drive to the, you know, to Richmond Park. They want to have a fun, like, on the green kicking a ball. That's what they want. They just want their dad to laugh and joke around and, you know, pick them up. And that genuinely was my focus throughout the initial rehab. I wanted to be able to function just as dad. <laughs> And that was my constant focus. And that, I think, helped keep a real perspective on what it is that I was trying to do. Realistically, the mountain was huge. I literally, I've described it that I felt like I was stood naked at the bottom of Everest and then just told, off you go, you need to get to the top. And when you feel that overwhelmed and swamped by a situation, I've had to learn, right, let's break it down. I need to compartmentalize here and right. If I just look at that, I'm just going to sit and cry and never, <laughs> never even take that first step. But by having my children as the focus, that was really the driving factor. They were and still are to this day my, my focus now. My focus has shifted. It's a very selfish profession. The industry I'm in, you have to be. You know, you're constantly looking in the mirror, trying to improve on yourself. Everything's about yourself, yourself, yourself. and the children take all that away. And finally, what are Stephen's golden rules to live by? I really do try and live by what my parents said to me at a young age. Just whatever you're doing, just do it properly. Do it the best you possibly can. So I, I hear myself relaying that to my own children already. My wife's great-grandfather lived till he was you know, 99, and his philosophy with his health was just, oh, I have everything, but just in moderation. And I also love that philosophy as well, because particularly in my industry, you can become so focused and tunnel visioned about what it is you're trying to do that you start to control every element of your life. You know, I must sleep this amount of hours and I must eat this food at this hour and I must do this, 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 this. And you become so chained to this way of life that actually sometimes you just need to sit down and have a glass of wine because that's going to make you feel good in other ways. Yeah, physically, is that the best thing for you to do? Probably not. But all the other elements that it will do and make you feel good are probably going to outweigh the slight negative impact that glass of wine will have on you physically. And that's only recently that I've learned that. So I think that philosophy of everything in moderation is actually a healthy approach to life. A massive thank you to Stephen for joining me on the podcast. So what can we take away? Don't just talk about it, do it. Stephen wanted to be a dancer and rather than being given room to decide against it, he was plunged straight into that world. 
When your gut is telling you something, act on it. You might find some parts of your career journey uncomfortable, but remember to push through. Stephen cried nearly every night when he first arrived in London, but his iron will meant he never gave up and eventually he achieved greatness. Equally though, make sure you question just how much you want what you're reaching for. Make sure the passion is there. If it's not, you can and will find it elsewhere. You may never truly shake imposter syndrome or stop being a perfectionist, but you can learn to trust yourself and trust the process. And finally, sometimes when you've set your sight on a single goal, you can tunnel vision too much. When that happens, take a big step back and refocus on what's really important to you. Think big picture. Thanks for listening to Fast Track to Fearless with me, Tracy Forsyth. Please review and like the show on Apple Podcasts. If you need further inspiration for your own career journey, you can check out all my courses and resources on fasttracktofearless.com. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.